Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome once again to our Bible study in the book of Romans. Uh, tonight, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 12, and the title of our lesson is Blessed and Working. We're going to kind of cover two things tonight. Let's begin with the word blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Um, I think, you know, we, we all have, have seen t-shirts that say, I'm blessed. We've I used to have a guy I run into it from uh, now and again, and he would say, I'd say, how are you? And he'd say, well, I'm, I'm too blessed to be stressed, and things like that. And I think we've got the idea of being blessed as, you know, uh, things are going good, right? My, my kids are healthy. My, I just got a promotion. I bought a new car, those kind of things. But it turns out that the word blessed doesn't at all mean that you're untroubled or or healthy are you, or admired are you, or prospered are you, prosperous are you. In fact, the Greek word uh, uh, for blessed, which is makarios, is a condition where you are deeply happy and content and secure in God. In fact, you can be blessed and in absolutely miserable circumstances. Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, blessed are you, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. To be blessed really means at its most basic, it is well with my soul. It has nothing to do with what's going on on the outside. It has everything to do with what's going on the inside. Now, I bring this up tonight for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason is, is that Paul is going to bring it up, and we'll get to that in just a second. But the other reason is this. You see, Romans is really the unfolding of the gospel. Um, we've been at this for several weeks now, and we're, you can, you can kind of start to see that we're looking at the gospel almost like with a magnifying glass, looking at every aspect of it. And, but what I want you to remember is the goal of this study is not to make us good theologians. The goal of this study is to make you blessed, to bring you to a point where you have such an understanding of the gospel that it creates a blessedness in you, a security and a contentment and a joy and a happiness in who you are in Christ. You see, this should be so basic to us, but yet somehow we seem to lose track of it. I put something on the screen there and that, what you're looking at right there, if we could graph the life of a person who's trying to earn their salvation, that's what it would look like. You know, there's days when I'm, uh, I'm on top of the world, man. I, you know, I didn't kick my dog. I, I, didn't, I didn't speak uh, badly to my wife, and I'm really doing good. And at the end of the day, I feel self-righteous. I feel like I'm a good person. The very next day, things don't go right. Uh, you know, I, I hit my finger with a hammer and I said words I hadn't heard in months um, and I'm condemned. What's wrong with me? I'm a bad person. That really is the life of a person who's trying to earn their righteousness. It, it's a roller coaster of a ride. But you see, when you depend on him, it's not about you. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in uh, Christ Jesus. And you see, this is what Paul is so thrilled about here in chapter 4. This is what he's exulting over. Our sins are charged to Christ, and his righteousness is credited to us. And all of that, by faith alone, apart from works. And you see, if we can understand that, if we really get that, 
down deep in our in our souls and in our hearts, then we are truly uh, blessed. Now, I said I, I broached that subject for two reasons. That's the first one. Let's look at how Paul brings it up in tonight's uh, verses. Romans 4, 5 through 8. Paul said this, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And Paul is quoting David in Psalms 32.1. You see, knowing that we are justified by faith alone should fill us with security and contentment and happiness and strength and joy. Why? Because my righteousness doesn't depend on me. You know, I don't have to get out of bed every day and earn my salvation. Let me say that again. I don't have to get out of bed every day and try to earn my salvation. I don't have to work for it. It is a a gift. I only have to uh, believe. One of my favorite scriptures is found in John chapter 6, and I I often find myself going back to this when when I find myself trying to earn it. I mean, there's this there's this propensity in each one of us to feel like I got to be better. I got to be better. And uh, I often go back to this when I find myself in that cycle. There were some men that came to Jesus one day and they asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. In other words, this is the only thing he's ever asked us to do is just believe. He'll take care of everything else if we'll only believe. Now, with that said, I want to spend the rest of the time this evening talking about works, and specifically the proper relationship of faith and works. And I do this because this is exactly what the the subject that Paul is about to bring up. So after describing this blessing of being forgiven and justified, Paul says this in Romans 4, 9. Is this blessing... Now again, remember, if you go back and read, the blessing he's talking about is a righteousness apart from works. Is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now, let's review once again. Circumcision for the Jewish people was this one basic act of obedience that defined them as Jews. It was a a physical mark that they were under a special covenant with God. But the question before uh, us and before them was this, did circumcision itself, did that act of obedience put them in a right relationship with God? Well, that's exactly what Paul is going to bring up. Let's read it again, verse 9. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So Paul is saying, okay, let's take, let's answer this question by taking Abraham as an example. So here's Abraham. He's been circumcised. He's the father of all the Jewish or the circumcised people. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. And once again, as we saw a few weeks ago, he's quoting Genesis 15:6. Now look what he says in verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And then Paul answers his own question. It was not after, 
but it was before he was circumcised. By the way, Abraham is circumcised in Genesis chapter 17. His faith is accounted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. So what Paul wants us to see is the blessing of getting right with God did not come by any act of obedience. It came before circumcision. It was independent of circumcision. Once again, it came by faith apart from works. Now this raises a question. Okay, why was he circumcised? If he was already justified by faith, what's the point of being circumcised? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, circumcision was an outward sign of an inner righteousness. He goes on, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, we just used the word circumcised about 27 times. Should all this talk about circumcision mean anything to you and I today? Absolutely yes. Absolutely. You know, there's one question that I probably get more than any other, and I see more confusion in this area than any other, and that is this. What part should works play in the life of a believer? For example, I, I've, I've this, this uh, passage in James chapter 2 has been brought before me more than any other. James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, let's think about this. Here's Paul saying that you are circumcised, I'm, I'm sorry, you are saved, you are declared righteous by faith apart from works. And here's James saying that if you have a faith without works, that faith is no good to you at all. It can't save you. So are, are these two um, scriptures uh, going against one another? Are they, are they teaching opposite things? Or, or No, not at all. They're, they are both on the same uh, wavelength. They're both teaching the same doctrine. You see, this is the exact issue that Paul is dealing with in tonight's verses. What is the proper relationship between faith and works. You see, I, I don't. Paul has spent a lot of time over the last two, two and a half chapters talking about justification by faith alone. But Paul's not interested at all in throwing obedience out the window. If you go back to uh, Romans 1 5, and, and I think our first or second lesson, we learn this. Paul says, We've received grace and apostleship for the purpose of bringing about the obedience of faith. So Paul wants us to walk in obedience. He wants us to obey the law of, of God. That he, he doesn't want to get rid of that. But what Paul wants us to see is that works of obedience have their proper place. And their proper place is not as the basis of justification, but as a sign of justification that comes by faith alone. You see, obedience by itself is never going to give you right standing with God. Faith alone does that. But obedience is a sign that your faith is real. 
You see, when your thoughts and actions conform to the will of God expressed in the Word of God, let me say that again. When your thoughts and actions in your life begin to conform to the will of God, which is expressed in the Word of God, that is a sign that you have the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, let's let's stay on that same subject, but kind of take a different turn. Let's ask a question. If circumcision was the act of obedience that signified that Abraham was justified by faith, is there an act of obedience for us that signifies that we have been justified by faith? Well, the answer to that is yes, there is, and that act is baptism. Paul says this in Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, with the little time that we have left tonight, I want to talk a little bit about this relationship between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. Have you ever wondered why Baptists are called um, Baptists? Well, Baptists subscribe to the doctrine that baptism should only be performed for professing believers. We call it the believer's baptism and that it should be done by immersion. Historians actually trace the earliest Baptist church back to 1609. There was a a pastor of a church by the name of John Smith, and he began to read the the New Testament. Now, you, you might say, well, why didn't people read it before? Well, again, you'd have to go back in history. The Bible, for the longest time, was only written in Latin. And only people who ne- who knew Latin, which were the priests and the bishops, the common man, the common person, didn't could not read Latin. And men uh, men came along and began to translate the Bible into English, and it changed everything. And so that men like John Smith began for the very first time in their life to open the Bible and read the Bible. And when he read the New Testament, he came to the belief that he would reject the baptism of babies, and he instituted baptism of believing adults only. Therefore, a movement kind of grew up around that, and these people became known as Baptists. So you might ask the question, well, what was it that he saw in the New Testament that caused him to reject the baptism of infants? Well, I want to give you three things. One of the things that he saw was that in every New Testament command, in every New Testament instance of baptism, the requirement of faith always preceded the act of baptism. For example, Acts 8.12, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. See, there's scriptures like this all over the New Testament which implies that infants who are incapable of understanding the gospel, who are incapable of putting their faith in Christ, are not to be baptized. Number two, one of the things he found when he opened the New Testament is there were no explicit instances of infant baptism found anywhere in the Bible. Now, there are three examples in the New Testament of household baptisms where an entire household was baptized. 
there's the household of Lydia in Acts 16. There's the household of the Philippian jailer, also in Acts 16. And there's the household of Stephanus, which is found in 1 Corinthians 1. And in all of those household baptism, there is no explicit um, uh, uh, mention made of babies or of infants. And in fact, in Acts 16.32, in the example of the Philippian jailer, it says this, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Once again, the idea here is they heard the word, they believed the word, and then, and only then, were they baptized. Number three, Paul explicitly defines baptism as an act done through faith. Once again, Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So you open the New Testament, you see no examples of infant baptism. You see every example of baptism is always preceded by faith. And the act of baptism itself is mentioned as an act of faith. So that kind of raises the question, well, how do people justify infant baptism? Well, it turns out, and the whole reason I'm bringing this up tonight, is that pedo-baptists, which are those that believe in infant baptism, actually see in Romans 4.11 a justification for their position. Let's read Romans 4.11 again. Talking about Abraham, it says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, you and I may read that and think, where do they get infant baptism out of that? Well, here's their argument. Circumcision was the sign of Abraham's justification by faith, which is true. That sign was then applied to babies of the nation of Israel. That's also true. All male infants of the nation of Israel were circumcised on the eighth day of their life. They moved to the next part. Baptism is a sign of a Christian's justification by faith. That also is true. Therefore, that sign should be applied to infants of Christians. You see, Abraham, for Abraham, circumcision was a sign of his justification by faith, and they applied it to all of their male descendants. Why shouldn't baptism be given to the children of Christians, even if they don't have faith yet? Now, let me tell you, that's not a bad argument. When you actually read it for the first time, you think, well, that kind of makes sense. And that is the justification for a lot of denominations that believe in infant baptism. But the problem is that argument has a fallacy. In fact, a fatal flaw in its reasoning. And the reason, the, the fatal flaw is this. They make a wrong assumption about the similarity of the church in the New Testament and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They assume that the way God put together his people in the Old Testament and the way that he gathers his people in the New Testament are so similar that baptism can be applied to Christians the same way that circumcision could be applied to the nation of Israel. But that's a mistake. And the reason it's a mistake is because there is a huge difference, a huge difference between the nation of Israel and the church. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's read Romans 9, 6 through 8. Paul says this, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. 
That is, those who are the children of flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, we won't go into that whole text, but what's relevant for us is that there were two Israels. There was a physical Israel, an ethnic Israel. And then inside of that nation, there was a spiritual Israel, a, a remnant that God had set aside for himself. You see, God bound himself by covenant to an ethnic, physical people. And he gave them a physical sign of that covenant, which was circumcision. But then he worked within that ethnic group to call out a remnant by faith, what Paul refers to as the true Israel. So here's the question for you and I. Is the New Testament church a continuation of the ethnic, physical Israel? Or is the New Testament church a continuation of that remnant? Well, we don't need to guess at this because Paul answers this for us in Galatians 4. He says this, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, which was Ishmael, born to Hagar, and one by the free woman, which was Isaac, born to Sarah. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. And you, brothers and sisters, he's talking to the church, like Isaac, are children of promise. You see, the people of the covenant in the Old Testament were made up of, of ethnic, physical people, uh, descendants of the bloodline of Israel, according or of Abraham, according to the flesh. Therefore, it was absolutely fitting that they would have a physical symbol, a physical sign of the covenant that God had with them. But the church is not based on any physical uh, distinctives at all. Uh, it's not black or white or male or female or rich or poor or anything like that. Um, it's built on the reality of faith alone. Therefore, the church is not a continuation of physical Israel. It is a continuation of the true Israel, the people, the remnant, the people of faith, not children of the flesh, but children of the promise. Therefore, it's not fitting that children born merely according to the flesh receive a sign of the covenant of faith. So we don't baptize our children according to the flesh. And it's not because we don't love them. But we want to preserve for them the purity and the power of a true baptism that God ordained for the believing church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. We know sometimes, Lord, that we're talking about things uh, that happened 2,000 years ago, and sometimes uh, we, we, if we're not careful, we'll tend to check out. But God, I just thank you that even those things that were applied to the nation of Israel, they have meaning for us today if we'll just open our hearts and minds to hear what your word says. God, help us to understand the meaning of baptism. Help us to understand the meaning of justification by faith. Help us to understand the meaning of the word blessing. Help us to understand all these things, God, not to make us better theologians, but God, to bring us to a point where we are so secure and so content and so peaceful and joyous and happy and strong in you, no matter what the circumstances are around our life. And we'll give you the praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.